This is Voices of the Mahjar, stories from the Lebanese diaspora from the Khairallah Center for Lebanese Diaspora Studies at North Carolina State University, where we preserve and promote the stories of Lebanese immigrants from across the world. Studio Alamphon Yuqaddim Al-Ustaz Najib Saraj. But my mother's relationship with the Lebanese community, if I may interrupt here, because uh, I remember people would come to the house, but what they would come with letters that they received from Lebanon. They could not read. My mother was more educated than they were, so she could read the Arabic letters, to, and then they would dictate a response, and she would write the would uh, write their letters for them, mm-hmm. and. So they, they were, it must have been very, very frustrating for them to get letters and not be able to uh, not be able to read them or even to respond to them. Angel Hobesh Ellis emigrated to the United States from Lebanon in 1926. She had just recently married her husband, Tufik Ellis, who had already left Lebanon by the time Angel began her journey. Tufik owned a general store in Carthage, New York, and had already carved out a life there after emigrating several years earlier. Carthage was a small milling town outside of Syracuse, close to the Canadian border. Angel followed in Tufik's footsteps, sailing from Beirut to Marseille, France, before embarking on the voyage to North America. Angel left everything to start a life with Tufik in New York. She left Khatin, her hometown, which lay just outside the capital city, Beirut, and her family, her mother, Adla, and her three siblings, Yusuf, Miriam, and Khalil. Her father, who had traveled to Ohio several years earlier, had died just after the onset of World War I. She would be the only one from her family to live in the United States. When she left her family, Angel was 22 years old. Over the course of 60 years, Angel received over 300 letters from her family and friends in Lebanon and across the world. She saved each letter, tucking them in shoeboxes for safekeeping. The earliest dated letter is from her friend, Badia, written on January 1st, 1925. This collection is unique. It chronicles over 60 years of geopolitical events in Lebanon and the United States from the perspective of a working-class Maronite Christian family. Over time, it shows us the subtle but profound changes that swept through Lebanon and the United States in the 20th century. The shift away from rural silk manufacturing in Lebanese villages, the ways in which the landscape became filled with paved roads and homes that were furnished with electric appliances, the onset of air mail that carried letters and packages by planes in place of ships, the written words eventual replacement with the telephone for distance communication, and the increasing interconnectivity through the radio and newspapers between relatives and friends across the Lebanese diaspora. However integral these details are to the history of the 20th century, 
They are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what these letters have to offer. They are captivating in a different sense as well. They encapsulate what these moments felt like to a family heavily involved and influenced by these large economic, environmental, and technological changes across time and space. The letters remind us as historical actors in our own era that individuals and families weathered these dynamics in intimate ways. Angel's family donated these letters to the Kairala Center in the winter of 2018 so they could be preserved and accessed as a tool for understanding Lebanese immigration in the 20th century. As a graduate student at the Kairala Center, I went to Villanova, Pennsylvania in December 2019 to meet two of Angel's six children, Kale and Alfreda, and to talk with them about their family and the letters. This is the story of Angel Ellis and the ways in which she adapted to living and raising a family in a new country while holding her memories and loved ones from Lebanon. My mother's name is Angel. Her maiden name is Habaish, H-O-B-E-I-C-H-E. That's Father Kale Ellis, Angel's youngest son. And the family name is really Kmeid, K-M-E-I-D. But my father, uh, somewhere along the line, probably not, not too long into when he came into this country, uh, I know it was definitely by 1925 because his passport indicates Ellis. And Ellis comes from the, uh, his grandfather's first name, which was in Arabic, Elias, and became Ellis. I was named after my, mo- my father's mother, but it, mine is anglicized. We have a lot of uh, similar names like Alfred and Alfreda. Well, they have, uh, that would be Farid and Farida. That's Alfreda Ellis, Angel's youngest daughter. Angel was a prolific writer, so I asked her children about their mother's early education in Lebanon. I heard this from my mother as well, that when she was about five years old, she was sent to this convent school mm-hmm. in Elzo, I think it's Elzo Tum in Lebanon, and uh, there were the French nuns, and there were French and Italian nuns uh, who staffed it. And when the war broke out in 1914, of course Lebanon really suffered during the war, <clears throat> because immediately there was a blockade and, uh, and also there was uh, the locusts uh, and also the, um, the Spanish flu and all that. And the country, hundreds of thousands of people died, you know, about 200,000, I think. At any rate, when the, uh, when the war broke out, all the Allied nationals had to leave, so the nuns had to leave and went back to France or Italy, wherever they were from. So uh, she... Uh, I think she was taking, she was taking, uh, uh, she went back to Atin, her home. She had been teaching, I think from the time she was 10 years old, and uh, immediately she became very proficient in French. And so French became the second language that they learned. And so she continued to teach the uh, children uh, French. And uh, as she got older, maybe 12, 14 years old, 15 years old, then this father, uh, Delore, 
he recruited her to teach in the school that he had just opened. Her entire family was literate, which helped them stay in touch once Angele emigrated to the United States, except her mother, Adla, who had Yusuf or Miriam write her letters to Angel while she dictated to them. Adla came from a prominent Maronite family, the El Cousins. And we went one time, we figured out where the house was where she grew up. And uh, there's a big old stone house. It looked very impressive. And there was another one next door. They were a very, very prominent family. And um, prominent even historically for, for Lebanon. I don't know if you want to hear this story. But... Um, there were during World War One. There were several uh, several nationalists, both Christians and Muslims, who were executed by the Ottomans. And they call it Martyr Square in Lebanon. They still call it Martyr Square. And among them were two brothers who were journalists, Al Hazm family, and Hadla. They would have been her first cousins. And so. Uh, my mother would tell the story that she remembers a girl that uh, when people would come up to the to the house in Atin, which was outside of, Be- out of outside of Beirut in June, Adla would always say, any news that they did they hang them yet or that type of thing, you know. And uh, so uh, eventually they were hung along with a number. One was a priest and some of the, a lot of Muslims. So there were about I think sixteen or seventeen people that were killed at that particular time. Miriam who died when she was just 29, was a nun at the Marileus convent in Gazir for her whole life. Marileus was special. Uh, it was a, it was run by the Antonine sisters. And it had a long history with the Hamites the family and that section, uh, they were both, I think, they were related and they, and they endowed the convent. I think it goes back to 1635. And there's a plaque in the chapel for it, you know. And it was kind of a, uh, uh, I guess, semi-cloistered, although I don't, I don't know how cloistered it was, but I think I mentioned that in the little essay I wrote about Miriam, but, uh, you know, she was always, you know, going up to her, her mother's house. So it was hardly a cloistered uh, atmosphere, but uh, <clears throat> my mother used to talk about Marley's convent all the time. Yusuf, Angel's eldest brother, was a member of the Lebanese Internal Security Forces, the Gendarme. He fought for the French in the Druze Revolt in 1925, but spent most of his time in the security forces coordinating service projects like building roads throughout Lebanon. Khalil, the family's youngest, worked for the Iraq Petroleum Company and traveled throughout the Middle East. Like Miriam, he died quite young in 1939. He was only 33. He was uh, an, an interesting story. I mean, we should talk about him. And uh, he uh, he was a, a, a merchant. Not no, he wasn't a merchant. He 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 worked for the uh, Iraqi Petroleum Company. Uh, it was Anglican, uh, Anglo, Anglo Iranian, whatever, uh, Persian, I guess it was. And he would had a truck, and he would travel back and forth. He even went to India and other places. And there are pictures of him on his truck, I think I sent them to you. I found those in Lebanon. And uh, he was, uh, uh, we don't know what he died of, though, because the, the last letter came from... He was in was the hospital a, for some time, and he was very yeah. sick. But he was, he, they say he was very powerful and very, very strong. And that's what her brother Yusuf was always had a reputation for being very, very strong and, you know, 
the story goes. And I've heard this many times. You know, he killed a horse with his fist and all this other stuff, you know. Did your mother tell you these yeah, stories? Yeah, oh yeah. But a lot of people in Lebanon told me these stories also. And uh, so, anyway, so those were the siblings. When Angel left Lebanon at age 22, it was in hopes of a better life. She was a talented teacher, fluent in Arabic and French, but also wanted to provide more for her family than teaching in Beirut allowed her to. The early years were challenging. Well, you recall the letters. It sounded like she was going to leave my father and go back to Lebanon. And, you know, like she was not, she was not happy here at all. And I can understand, you know, she was lonely. And she probably uh, fell out of play. I don't know the whole, she never really talked. She, she never really talked. I only learned that from the letters. And about her, Khalil wrote to her and said, well, come back. Well, we have money. You know, you have money. We can find you to come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she had all these kids. Oh, she had Teresa. She would take the daughter, take the girl with you and all yeah. that. The, the yeah. Teresa was born at that time, right? Tufik worked long hours at the family store, even once the kids got older. But be honest with you, we never saw much of our father. Because he would go to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, come home at 11 o'clock at night. In the meantime, uh, my father now has had had his store for 10, 15 years, almost. And uh, my sister, who was the oldest in the family, used to help my father in the store. So she was the one he depended on so much. uh, But be honest with you, we never saw much of our father. Because he would go to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, come home at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, Yeah, 11 o'clock at night, you know. He he opened that store all the time. Somebody would go relieve him for lunch. He would come home and have lunch and all that. And uh, I don't know about dinner, but... uh, Teresa used to go. Yeah. And then it was... uh, He didn't have the Lord work in the store for some reason. No, there was... (laughs) There was... um, uh, Teresa was his mainstay. And then Rafi and Alfred, the three of them worked in the store most most of the time. Carthage was ethnically diverse for a small town and had several Lebanese families and businesses, but otherwise shared little resemblance to Lebanon. The town itself had like a lot of big Italian group. They had a lot of, uh, uh, of course, it's primarily Irish. It's a lot of French Canadians because of the proximity to Canada. Uh, well, well the, um, Polish, there was a big Polish community as well. Yeah. I mean, so for a small town, it was very diverse in the sense of uh, ethnic uh, diversity. Angel missed her family and her home. The letters she received from Miriam indicated she had had one or more miscarriages, though they never referred to it by that name. Her sister, Miriam, in Lebanon would write to her and say, you know, she didn't say, I mean, the you word miscarriage sick. wasn't used, no. but it was like you right. had a difficult time and blah, 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 you know. Lost. Yeah. Her daughter Teresa, the first of her six children, was born in 1928. She was named after Saint Teresa, a figure Angel had a strong connection to throughout her life. She always prayed to Saint Teresa. Of course, she wasn't, I don't think she was canonized at that time. No, she was in the 20s, she was canonized. Yeah. yeah. And um, <clears throat> my mother was so intent on having this baby and so she prayed and prayed to St. Teresa and this one evening she was in the hospital for several days Uh, she was having she had a difficult birth and this one night she fell asleep and she thought she smelled roses 
And so she said, St. Teresa came to me during the night and, um, and the roses just filled the room. And the nurses then, later on, the nurses came in and told her that her child had been born. Even after giving birth to Teresa, Angel contemplated returning home to her family, whose open arms were comforting in the midst of unfamiliar surroundings. In 1927, Yusuf wrote, Do you know that if you are among your family, your health will improve and our health, too, will be better when we get to see you? Nevertheless, Angel would not return to Lebanon until the late 1940s, over 20 years after having left. Having survived the early, agonizing social and cultural adjustments required of many immigrants in the United States, who were, and still are today, often treated as second-class citizens, Angel focused on strengthening her family and her community in Carthage and across the diaspora. Angel prioritized learning English. But she was, she was very interested in education. Well, you, didn't, you didn't tell a story about the ring and Kate Trainer. Did you have that story? No, the, the only way I knew about it was through Delore. Delore knew that, my, that she had, in order to pay her for um, giving her English lessons, she took the ring off her finger and gave it to her. She quickly became a leader in Carthage's Lebanese community. Receiving and sending letters had a profound effect on immigrant families in the 20th century. It was the only means of communicating, both in terms of tragedies and successes. Angel witnessed the passing of her older sister Miriam, younger brother Khalil, and mother Adla through letters, often days or weeks after the fact. But my mother's relationship with the Lebanese community, if I may interrupt here, because uh, I remember people would come to the house, but what they would come with letters that they received from Lebanon. They could not read. My mother was more educated than they were, so she could read the Arabic letters, to, and then they would dictate a response, and she would write the Arabic. She would uh, write their letters for them. Mm -hmm. And... So they, they were, it must have been very, very frustrating for them to get letters and not be able to, uh, not be able to read them or even to respond to them. But you know, she could do that for, that was, that was basically her service. You know, they kind of looked up to her for that. She worked to solidify these links, even for those outside her nuclear family. Writing was an important tool for Angel. She used it to maintain ties with her family in Lebanon but also used it to share her opinions. Oh, she'd write to everybody. She wrote to the letter, and I found that one letter. She wrote to the patriarch, and she wrote to, uh, you know, she, she wrote to the, I don't know, she wrote to the She Pope. wrote to the bishop of um, di the diocese. The family grew up close to the church. And, and also the house uh, on 514 West Street. It was a block from the church. Angel's main involvement outside her family was through her church, St. James. The church provided Angel with a community that fostered the religious beliefs she was brought up with. In some of her later writings, Angel noted fervent efforts to fundraise for St. James, which included cooking food for bake sales and the church fair. What about the church fair and all making all the Lebanese food, like the tabbouleh and all this yeah. other stuff, right? The church began to realize it had to raise money, so they had this, what they called 
the church was St. James, and so because the St. James Fair, and it became very popular. And that was over forty years ago that they started doing that. They these uh, couple of women got together, and they decided that they were going to have their own booth, you know, and uh, so they really. Uh, rush to make stuff and bake and and that and it it grew and it grew quite a bit and then um, I think it must have been in the 50s or the 60s that they started that because it, it was 40 some years ago that yeah, the 60s so. yeah so but anyways, anyway that introduced everybody else to London but she would make a lot of the women went there so they could man the booth, you know, but she would make the tabbouleh. She was a tabbouleh woman, and she made it, and they would come down, pick it up, and sell it. Come down, pick it up, and sell it. Yeah. So that was her contribution. In 1947, Angel wrote an article for Al Hoda, the most widely circulated Arabic-language newspaper in North America at the time. The article was titled, Maronite Mass in a Latin Church, which described a time when a Maronite priest came to St. James to lead Mass for the parishioners. She notes how the Euro-American audience rejoiced at the music and were able to hear Arabic, or in her own words, quote, the same language that Christ spoke, unquote, maybe for the first time. Angel promoted these moments of cultural exchange and celebration in her town, but also as an example for Lebanese communities across the country. During World War II, women in Carthage helped with the war effort. Roosevelt, between the, um, uh, you know, when, when the war started, 1940s, um, she would like she'd go volunteer with the nurse with the they weren't nurses what, what what did they call them they used to make bandages for them yeah I, I remember visiting her as a kid they would be in that this this spring that was name she that she was using she, the uh, the sewing machine you know, yeah they, they, would they would, a lot of the women in Carthage during the war were making bandages to send abroad uh-huh. and all that yeah Angel then turned her efforts to providing relief in Lebanon in 1945. Angel sent $130, the equivalent of over $1,800 today, to a Catholic orphanage in Beirut to support them in their time of need. For her, it was important to give to both communities, to help both Beirut and Carthage through trying times. Angel was politically active and kept up with world events. Well, she, she listened to the news every day. She read the newspapers. Uh, she had the Arabic paper. She had the English paper. Angel was active in the Carthage Women's Republican Club, and in 1969 was one of two delegates from her club to travel to the National Conference in Washington, D.C. The Women's Republican Club, among other things, focused on registering people to vote. Her political views differed from Kale and Alfreda's, and even from her husband's. But Kale points out her attention to detail in terms of political affiliation. By the way, I want to go back to something that you, that you had mentioned about her relationship with other people. 
My mother was a staunch Republican. Yeah. I don't know what she would have thought. She, we, she belonged to the, matter of fact, we have a picture of her in Washington, D.C. Yeah, she went down to Washington, traveled mm -hmm. with the you representatives. Saw that. Yeah. So uh, my father was a Democrat, so they canceled each other out, obviously. <laughs> but uh, they did vote. However, politically, she was adamantly against the war in Iraq, adamantly against it. And she was smart to do that. And I was, I was really admired the fact that she didn't buy all that propaganda, which was all made up anyway. You know? She engendered a sense of global politics, history, and connection in the home. And Kale remembers the effects this had on him. We used to have the stand-up radio, you know, the old-fashioned stand-up radio. And she would have that on. And she would get signals from Canada, especially the French station. There always the prayers in the morning, <laughs> some, some religious program. Yeah. And then there was the news. There was the news uh, all the time. She was constantly listening to the news. And I remember as a little kid, you know, laying on the floor next to that radio. And that, that's how I became interested in, in world affairs. Yeah. You know, because and I still remember. I remember, you know, the takeover of Hungary and the, the uh, Cardinal Menzendi being, you know, all that stuff. You know, it's amazing. Angel spent a lifetime cultivating relationships between diasporic Lebanese communities. She brought the richness of Lebanese food, culture, and language to the small town of Carthage in upstate New York while she herself learned English and became politically active in the Women's Republican Club. She was an envoy to others in the Lebanese diaspora, and she wrote about issues that affected the Lebanese in the United States and across the world. All these efforts came from desires she held within herself to stay connected to her family in Lebanon. In 1991, at age 87, Angel wrote a poem titled, I'd Like to Return to Lebanon. These 14 stanzas reiterate the feelings she shared throughout her letters, that though she lived with distance between her and her home, she never lost the ability to carry these memories with her throughout her life. Angel Ellis died in 1994. She was 90 years old. That's when we had a big... Well, basically, a memorial mass for her in Marlier's convent, which was the Habash convent. And uh, that's where we have the pictures of her being lowered into the crypt. And, uh, and it was a big event. And a lot of people, other friends of their family over there, I mean, they didn't, they didn't know who she was. You know, They just knew that she was related to them. And, uh, and it was a big party that Johanna, like our cousin, you know, Busser's daughter, you know, put on this... Uh, big feast afterward. It's very, very nice. Was, they, yeah. Better than anything we could have had here, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, we thought we thought she would we thought she would like that. I'm not sure she would because she be very stubborn sometimes. But it was like, uh, you know, we, we, we figured that poem, I'd like to be turned to Lebanon. You know, oh, yeah. you know, and that was, uh, that was her wish. Uh -huh. so, we, so we did. When I asked Kale and Alfreda about their mother's influence on the sense of their Lebanese heritage, the impact was clear. Oh, we definitely knew what our nationality was, yeah. Because... She was always telling stories about she Lebanon. She was, yeah. And she, she, was she, always... loved, she loved to tell stories.
Thank you for listening to Voices of the Mahjar, a podcast from the Khairallah Center for Lebanese Diaspora Studies. Explore our website at lebanesestudies.ncsu.edu to find our online archive, digital mapping projects, peer-reviewed journal, documentary projects, and more. Music for this podcast comes from our collection of early 20th century Arab-American music, which can also be found in our online archive, courtesy of UC Santa Barbara Special Collections.